Blog Talk Radio. Quiet, please. with filmmakers where we discuss everything film and television. Here on Movie Beat, you'll learn what to do and what not to do when it comes to making movies and TV. We will talk to everyone behind the scenes and in front of the camera, and I'll provide you with guests and the information you're going to want to have, whether you're a filmmaker or a fan. And so now let's move behind the scenes here at Movie Beat. First, I want to thank everyone who's listening in today live or archived. Uh, we appreciate you so much for your support, your emails, your tweets, your Facebook, uh, all the phone calls, everything you do to support the show. I want to uh, thank the readers of the blog, and uh, I want to thank everyone who's joined us in the chat room. Welcome. The chat room is open. My name is Rex Sykes. I'm your host. Our guest today is uh, actor Harry Northup. Harry's appeared in numerous films. He started, he uh, appeared in the first six movies that Martin Scorsese made. And we're going to be with him in just a moment. But first, uh, I want to say a few things to you. And that is, Movie Beat is really designed to be a resource for you. That is why I'm connecting you up with professionals who are making it happen. The official website is Rex Sykes Movie Beat at R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S dot com. That's my name. That's Rex Sykes dot com. And you can subscribe to the website by clicking on the RSS feed right there at the welcome page. All of these interviews are archived as well at the interviews blog on RexSykes.com. So if you've missed any or you want to go back and hear them again, you can go to RexSykes.com, click on the interviews link, and it will open up all of the interviews. There's over 190 hours of interviews uh, right there on the website. They're also available at iTunes as a podcast. And so you can you can subscribe and get all of them downloaded to your favorite electronic device. Take them with you wherever you go. Um, it's been said that uh, Rex Sykes Movie Beat is a master class in film and television production, and it certainly is. Uh, we're very lucky to have expert professional filmmaking and TV making guests who share their expertise with you, who divulge secrets, insider information, tips, suggestions, and advice to help you make your projects, your films, your video games, your content, your web series faster, smarter, easier, more effectively, and less expensively, and to advance your career, whether you're a director, producer, writer, grip, gaffer, craft service person, actor, whatever you may be, uh, this is the website for you. Uh, we give it to you absolutely free. All we ask in return is that you spread the word, spread the love, share the information with others. Tweet someone right now that the show is live or that you're listening to it archived. Go ahead, tweet someone. Pick up the phone, call someone, get them to listen in. Email, Facebook, MySpace, your favorite uh, social media means just go ahead, reach out to others, and, and, and grab them and bring them into the show live, archived, or as a podcast. And we really appreciate it when you do that. So thanks so much for being here today, and uh, I'm looking forward to my conversation with Harry. Harry E. Northup has made a living as an actor for over 30 years, acting in 37 films, including Mean Streets, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, 
taxi driver, blue-collar, citizens' band, used cars, Over the Edge, in which he starred. I believe that was Matt Dillon's first movie. Uh, I'll have Harry correct me if I'm wrong. The Silence of the Lambs, the uh, uh, Philadelphia, Bad Girls, Beloved, and the remake of The Manchurian Candidate. He's, he's appeared in over 43 television shows, including ER and The Court in Cold Blood, which was a CBS miniseries, uh, The Deliberate Stranger, The Day the Bubble Burst, Not Slanding, he had a reoccurring role, and many, many others. He's been a, an Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences member since 1976, and he is also an acclaimed poet and author of over of, of, of at least nine books of published poetry. So I'd like to uh, welcome my guest and friend, Harry Northup. How you doing, Rex? I'm doing well, Harry. How are you? Well, it's a little rainy in L.A. today, but I'm fine. Well, that's good. That's good. Uh, I'm so glad that you're with us and that you're on the show and uh, going to be sharing uh, uh, information about your career and any insights that you might have for you know fellow actors or thespians in terms of pursuing careers you know is always welcome. Uh, what I wanted to ask you though, um, first off, is you have worked you know many times with uh, the same directors. In other words, they have hired you back. Uh, multiple times, which I think is is a, is a testament one to your skill, uh, to your professionalism, and, and to your ability to get along with people. Um, Scorsese's hired you for six films in his first TV show. Jonathan Demme uh, hired you for ten acting roles. Uh, it's Jonathan Kaplan, I think, right? Uh, hired you for twelve acting jobs. You worked four times in Roger Corman's film. Can, you know, uh, let me ask you about that, because one, I'd like you to be able to compare these different directors and the, and, and the working styles and, and what it was like, but also the fact that, that, you know, I think any actor hopes that they get hired back, and you've been hired back, you know, numerous times. So uh, uh, what do you have to say about that, and, uh, and, and how do you get yourself hired back so often? A couple of years ago, there was a movie called Bright Star about Keats. And Keats, in his letters, he once talked about how, and this he learned from Shakespeare, he said the poet should be a chameleon. In other words, as an actor, you shouldn't be like John Wayne, even though he was tremendous, or Bogart, but you should be uh, more like a Robert De Niro or Charles Lawton, where you're, say if you're a poet and you're writing a poem, instead of just constantly writing about me, if I see you in a room, I get under your skin, and I try to depict you through my words. So I think part of it has to do with being able to play different types of role, whether the role is a rapist or a bartender or a blue-collar worker or a sheriff. That's number one. And then number two, it's just uh, it's a mystery to me. I mean, God bless Scorsese and Demi and Kaplan. I guess you would have to ask them why they hire me, but I would imagine the word trust is in there, where they like you. And, you know, for them, it was somewhat, I imagine, like a um, a stock company, like John Ford. He had a bunch of actors that he used over and over again. So um, I would imagine trust and, and then some miracle where people just happen to like each other while that uh, collaboration is going on. Well, that's, that's, that is that is a, a great answer, actually. Uh, now, you started in Over the Edge, uh, directed by Jonathan Kaplan, and uh, Fighting Mad, directed by Jonathan Demme. You've got an upfront co-starring, uh, upfront co-starring and starring billing on ten films, you know. But you're also a character actor, a supporting player or actor. Um, when you say that you get under the skin, you uh, let's go back a bit. You know, when you when you began, you you um, 
you began your professional actor career. You studied method acting with uh, the Broadway director, Frank uh, Corsaro. Yes. Correct? Yes. Now, do you consider yourself a method actor? Yes. Method acting, I studied five years with Frank Corsaro, and I remember I'd been out of college a little while, and I started studying with him, and the first scene I did was a scene from Billy uh, from the Great God Brown, I played Billy Brown, a, an O'Neill play, and I remember doing the scene in Frank Corsero's class in New York, and I did it exactly the way the uh, college teacher had blocked the sh- the show, and so I wasn't really doing it out of my own volition, out of my own juices, so to speak. And so the second scene, he lined me up with um, Hector Elizondo, and we did a scene from Grapes of Wrath, and all I did in that scene was. I remembered when I was in the Navy, I was standing guard for four hours, and the sun kept beating down on me. So I just recreated that sensory particular time when uh, the sun was hitting me, and then that made me totally relax. And method acting, you use yourself. You know, Stanislavski, it's all based on Stanislavski. And what people forget is he wrote the first book about acting called An Actor Prepares, which a lot of people read. The the book many people do not read or think about is the second one, which is Building the Building a Character or Building the Character. So you first of all, you say to yourself or you realize you are the character. Then you reveal some part of yourself which is in the character, you find parallel lines, and then if need be, say like in um, The Silence of the Lambs, there's a scene where Jodie Foster finds Mr. Bimmel, the character I played, and he was the father of the first victim. So she takes, he takes her inside, and she's looking for clues to the killer, and he tells her that his daughter, Frederica, went to Chicago for an interview and never came back. Well, at that moment, what I was thinking about inside myself was a parallel situation where my teenage son got into trouble and I had to go bail him out and I remember it moved me emotionally. So I just, inside my own self, I recreated that particular personal, you know, private moment and then concentrated on that and then, you know, dealt with the external scene. That's wild. Now, now, how do how do you as an actor? How do you do that? How do you keep uh, two things going? One is you've got to know the lines and the movements, the blocking. But the other thing is you've got this subtext. You've got this other uh, world that that you're you're reacting to and from, and and you're being affected by. How how, how does how do you as an actor make that work? How does that how does it happen? I mean, I, through your well, training. First of all, First of all, it's a place to put your concentration. In other words, uh, oh, there was a great, the Barrymore, John Barrymore. When Before John Barrymore would go on stage, he would get so fearful that he would drink or he would rich. And what happens with method acting, you have a place to put your concentration. You put your concentration on a personalization, a private moment, or you choose something to help you relax. Memory is bound up in three places. There's the mental there's the physical and there's the emotional. Our memories, say, if you started wanted to write about your mother, uh, you think about maybe the way she cooked and a particular meal, and you start smelling the smell of the cooking, and then that, re, you know, evokes an emotion, and then that leads, you know, then there's an arc. It's kind of like remember, um, look homeward angel, uh, Tom Wolfe. The first part of the book, he would start with some of those memories that would evoke. Uh, 
you know, emotion and then carry the memory. So the a, a mental one would be like, I remember your phone number. Or a physical, you go out in the car and you turn the key on. Uh, and then the emotional, where all the memories are bound up, is through the emotions, you know, touch, taste, feel, etc. And, and, and that's how we receive and that's how we store. Like maybe um, you think about a song that was playing on the radio when you kissed your first girlfriend. And then that brings all the romance back you know, to that particular time. So it's you, you just think of something inside yourself, and then you also deal with the external. Uh, you know, it, it, basically what it is, living privately in public. In other words, when you and I are talking, is for me to be thinking my thoughts without being swayed by you, or if you're with a group of people, without being swayed by the herd. In other words, think your own thoughts in public, but do the external uh, lines obviously and if you're working with somebody you know that person is not the person you're thinking of so you have to delineate, delineate that you can't fool yourself but it's just really a place to put your concentration which helps you relax also helps you to evoke the emotion and finally it helps you to believe in the scene well, that is fantastic now obviously that does require training now the method has been you know, lauded. I mean, people love it, and other people, it's been it's been lambasted. You know, you hear stories of, you know, James Dean or something taking hours and hours and hours. You know, sitting trying to, you know, working with a a ketchup covered apple to try and create, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> those stories. You know, uh, to try and recreate the the car crash in uh, in um, uh, in a, in a, in a scene from the movie, uh, but. Uh, so how do you do it? I mean, you work in film. You worked with Scorsese six times. I want to ask you about working with him and what what he's uh, all of these directors what they like to work with, it, especially you know as a method actor. But also you work in television, and that has a different kind of speed to it. That uh, how, how do you do method and television? Well, you, what you do basically, you get the script, you go through the script, you make your choices. Obviously, TV you can't change any of the lines. Movies. Like I've contributed a lot, working with the, some of the directors you've named, I've been allowed to contribute. Uh, but TV, you've got to be very exact, and you've got to work more quickly. But basically what you have to do is just read the script, make your choices emotionally, make your choices physically, uh, you know, in terms of gestures, your external character. And then, you know, you simplify. It just really comes down to simplify. And, and just to give you a simple example, uh, say if you wanted to uh, be drunk in a scene, you take a glass of water and you think to yourself, okay, this is a glass of water. You look at it, and then you start comparing it with a glass of white wine. And then you taste the water. You know it's water, but you say, this is water, but, you know, I'm drinking wine too. In other words, you delineate the two, but you, the mind, you know, the suggestions you, you give to the mind. And then slowly you just practice. It's like anything else. You know, you, you run the race over and over again, and the more you do it, the more your muscles are stronger. And then, so basically it just comes down to choosing something and then simplifying. Awesome. So, so the, the, the statement, perfect practice makes perfect yeah, is, yeah. Is the uh, is the key here? So, so you rely on your training. Well, I, I did. I just mentioned, um, and I, and I'm going to go back. I want to go back to your career, but I I mentioned Martin Scorsese and these other directors. Uh, Scorsese. Um, so, what's it like? I mean, I, I don't want this to be the, the purely fan based question of what was it like to work with. So, what I'm interested in is is his approach to to working and and how you fit. You worked with him multiple times. What did you discover? What did you learn about? You know him as a director and and your place as an actor in utilizing the method in these movies and and 
you know, were there conflicts or, or you know, uh, issues that, that arose that, that, you know, you overcame and worked together? Uh, take it from there. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Well, the, you know, there's a couple of places I could enter this conversation, in, but I will just start with the first one, which is something you, you talked about how, uh, if I have anything to say to young actors, the first job I worked for Martin Scorsese was Who's That Knocking at My Door, his first feature film. And I played a, The Rapist, and it was in 1967. So being a theater actor, when I arrived on the set, uh, I kept thinking of the scene as a long arc, you know, a long enraged rape scene. But then once you start working, what you do in this particular scene, I played a college student who drove up, Zena Bethune was the actress, her character, and I drive up, stop, drive up, you know, back up, drive up, stop, back up, you know, shoot it in pieces, then I make a right turn into the farmhouse area and stop, and then, you know, do it back up, do it over again until we get the prints, and then, you know, turn out the lights, turn out the car, lock the door, put my arm around her, and then the ensuing rape begins, you know, in the car, then she jumps out of the car, runs down the hill into the snow, I grapple with her in the snow, pull her up the hill, you know, force her in the car again, the rape continues. But the point I'm getting to is I learned that film is made in pieces. So it's a technical thing. In other words, you have to have the inner life going, the emotion, whatever you're working on, you know, to provide the energy, the emotional energy and the anger and the rage, et cetera, for this act. But then you have to also be disciplined to know that it's shot in pieces. And so it's film is a technical uh, uh field obviously so that's number one and number two it's a collaborative field so field so you always have to work with the other people so that was the first lesson i learned as an actor that film is shot in pieces and then just to give you to jump ahead uh when i worked with scorsese on taxi driver i i walked into columbia and he gave me the script after he had told me i got the part and he handed me the script and there are two things that i remember he said um here's the script to taxi driver i want you to play doughboy he said, uh, the the dialogue's a little too direct. You know the way we work sideways. And then he said a couple other things. He says, I'm going to turn Taxi Driver into a gothic horror story, which he did. And I'm going to use Garish B-movie 50s uh, color. Well, you know, it has that garish look. And so uh-huh. that was how I got it. So that was the beginning of that film. Awesome. So, so, so uh, we said we're going to work sideways. What, what, what do you think that meant? It means sometimes – do you remember when De Niro, uh, after he shot Harvey Keitel, remember when he, he's looking for the girl and Harvey Keitel's the pimp and Harvey uh-huh. Keitel flips a cigarette and the De, De Niro pulls out his gun, sticks it in his belly and says, suck on this, and he shoots him. And then when he walks from that scene to the doorway of the apartment building, he doesn't walk in a straight line. He walks kind of sideways and this way and that way, almost like the way a crab works. In other words, uh-huh. don't be so obvious. You know, let it come out of left field sometimes or let it come sideways, you know. Like, say, if, when we're doing a scene with De Niro, uh, Rob, uh, Peter Boyle and me and there was another guy, Norman Matlock, who played Charlie T in the cabbie uh, stand on 45th and 10th, there's a scene where uh, in the script it was written, uh, Peter Boyle says, Travis, do you, or uh, Doughboy, do you know Travis? And then he says hi, and then I say, in the script it was written, oh, yeah, we went to Harvard together. But I changed that line. I said, hey, Travis, you got changed for a nickel because I heard a cabbie say that one time. 
So, you know, sometimes your things come out of the blue, and so you you include things like that. Awesome. Now, um, talk a little bit about that scene and about your character of Doughboy. The, 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 the scene uh, is you're trying to sell Travis, the De Niro character, a piece of Errol Flynn's bathtubs, and it's been considered one of the most imaginative and offbeat scenes there is. How did that come about, and how did Scorsese rehearse it with you? Before I went to New York, I thought, what can I do to enhance my scene? And sometimes you're sitting around your apartment, and an idea comes to you, and then all of a sudden I thought to myself, well, I don't know whether De Niro or Peter Boyle will allow that, but I thought, no, you can't think that way. What what I go by, there was a book, uh, a short story, rather, by Delmore Schwartz, who was one of the most important poets of his generation in New York. And, and in 1937 or 38, he had a story published, and the title was In Dreams Begin Responsibilities. And I've often... I always feel that whatever comes to you as an artist, it's your duty to execute those thoughts. Don't judge them morally. Just execute them. So what I did was I thought, here's my character. I have four scenes in the movie. I have to try to sell. The main action line is I have to sell De Niro or get him, take him to the guy who sells him a gun that he uses to you know, commit carnage at the end of the film, at least one of the guns. And so... Uh, I thought, well, here I am, a, a, a small-town guy from Nebraska. De Niro's a big city, you know, great actor. I, I have to, you know, it's like if I met you driving a cab, and I, how could I say to you, do you want to buy a gun? You know, you might be a cop. So I thought, well, i got to prove to, or vi he might think I'm a cop. You might think I'm a cop. So I thought, well, i got to make him think I'm sicker than he is. So I thought, all right, I will try to sell him a piece of Errol Flynn's bathtub because in the future somebody will be trying to sell some schmo a piece of Robert De Niro's clothing, you know, like a metaphor. So after we rehearsed that first scene, and if you remember, there's Norman Matlock, Peter Boyle, Doughboy, Harry Northup, and then there's a empty seat. De Niro comes in. He sits down. And what Marty did, he wouldn't use uh, De Niro in the rehearsals. He would just have him come in as if for the first time and then uh, speak to us. And then there would be an oval between he and the character Doughboy, and a lot of times there's just De Niro on the scene, but he's an alienated figure. So after we rehearsed the scene, I told Marty, after I exit the scene, I'd like to come back, try to sell De Niro a piece of Errol Flynn's bathtub, and I explained to him the dialogue, and Marty says, great, I love it. And I told him, if you don't like it, you don't have to, all you can do is cut it, because, you know, directors, they don't want to take 45 minutes to set up a new scene. So all I did was exit, come back in, try to sell him, the piece of Aeroflynn's bathtub, and then uh, Scorsese had told De Niro, Harry's going to try to sell you something, and then just say no. So after he heard my spiel, you know, about the watermark, you know, if you want to buy it, you know, give me half of what you sell it for, this and that, De Niro says no, and then the scene kind of falls off. And there were even times when the top of my head was a little out of the frame, but it was just a total, uh, you know, great scene, and, and it just worked perfectly. And then later I realized there were a lot of water images and then also the sexuality of being in the bathtub with two women, you know, Errol Flynn-like. And so it all kind of worked into the repressive, the repressed sexuality of, uh, of uh, De Niro's character also. Wow. Now, you mentioned, I mean, there's so much that, you know, we could, we could go on, you know, on just one thing. Uh, like this and, and, and in depth to it, but, but you also mentioned earlier the notion of being a chameleon and you, and you play so many different kinds of characters. You're the rapist and who's it knocking at the door and a, a racist sheriff in Boxcar Bertha and a Vietnam vet in Mean Streets. Uh, 
you know, and the bartender of Jim and Joe's that Alice doesn't live here anymore, you know, and then and then Joe Boy. Um, can you do any one of those? Pick any one or or all of those, and and let's and let's talk about that because each time, I mean, I, I'm interested because now you, we have the opportunity to talk to someone who's worked with the same director, and you've developed different characters in different films. You know, how did your style, working style together, you know, evolve or or um, your own personal style evolve over over the period of time. You know, you, in fact, let's track back just a little bit. You you um, you uh, you you uh, and find out how how maybe this contributed. You began working in theater and and then you lived in seventeen places by the time you were seventeen. You know, um, let's 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 start from the beginning and then get back into uh, the Scorsese movies. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. My dad worked for civil service. In the Depression, a lot of people who couldn't get work, my dad had a general store, and then that fell through uh, when a lot of relatives came and lived with our family in the late 20s, early 30s, and then he started working for the government. So he would work for a civil service base. Whenever he would find a better job in a different town, we would move. And so, you know, we were constantly on the move. But most of my life, you know, I was born in Amarillo, Texas. I lived in San Gabriel. As a matter of fact, when I was like, you know, one year old, uh, my parent, my dad, mom, sister, brother, and me, we lived in a converted chicken house, uh, chicken hut behind wow. my aunt in San Gabriel, California. And then so we moved back to Denver, we moved up Mountain Home, Idaho, et cetera. But most of my life I lived in western Nebraska, a little town called Sydney, and then we lived on Seward Depot, 12 miles away where my dad worked. But I did my first play when I was 14 years old, Connie Madsen, the short little woman, uh, for the Panhandle Players, cast me as Eddie in Time Out for Ginger, and then a year and a half later, she cast me as George in Our Town. And uh, I remember two things she told me. She said, uh, speak so they can hear you in the back row, and secondly, do whatever you can do to get into the theater, even if that means sweeping the floor. So I really love the camaraderie of the people in the theater, and here I was a young boy, you know, hanging out with adults, and I love that aspect of life and then i went to the navy then i went to college and i did a bunch of leads reverend hale and great god brown billy brown and the great god brown or reverend hale and the crucible rather billy brown the great god brown and um cassio and othello and then i quit college when they didn't cast me in a play i hitchhiked to new york and i sat up all night in the greyhound bus station on 34th and 8th for three nights and auditioned for summer stock in the daytime I didn't get any work. I came home back to Nebraska, hitchhiked back. I was playing baseball on a town team, and I got a call from Guy Palmerton, who had four uh, summer stock theaters, and this one was in Lake Whalum, uh, Fitchburg, Mass. So he had me come to Lake Whalum, and I worked there, and I got my equity card after the first season. So that was kind of my entrance into professional theater. Wow. Wow, and then did you act in college? Yes, I did. I did those three roles, as I told you. The yes. first one was Cassio, and then Reverend Hale. I did a great job, and uh, the O'Neill play. Yeah. And then you, and then you. How did you get your equity card? I was working at the Lake Wayland Playhouse, and usually it takes two years. I was an apprentice. There were 21 apprentices that started out, you know, painting flats, carrying flats, going after props. I did several small roles, and then at the end of the year, the producer liked me. And he gave me my card. I remember one time he told me something that I always remember. Uh, you know, you go to when you first enter the theater, you find out so much about human behavior and human life that I'd never known before. But uh, 
I, I got free place to live and then all the macaroni salad I could eat. But one day he he came to me and he says, you're a hard worker, Harry. I'm going to give you $20 a week, which at that time you could eat on. And then he looked at me and he said, you look like you had a mother and a father. And that was that was one of the nicest things anybody ever said to me, Guy Palmerton. Wow, that's very cool. Harry, hey, we got to take a break and do a little bit of a station identification and uh, let people know who our upcoming guests are going to be. I sure am enjoying this, Harry. I should tell the listeners uh, that uh, you and I have known each other for many years, and I've had the privilege of sitting uh, at breakfast with you for probably like 15 years straight, and, and even now, whenever I get back to L.A., I, I I you know search you out and and uh, enjoy talking with you and visiting with you and I sure am enjoying this and uh, allowing the listeners to to uh, hear some of the stories and some of the things that I've gotten to hear over the years and and I'm learning a whole lot uh, about uh, you and your career that that even I didn't know so I, I so appreciate this Harry. Me too. All right. Uh, you are listening to uh, Rex Sykes Movie Beat with uh, my guest today is Harry Northup. And the official website is rexsykes.com, R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S. Again, you can subscribe to the official website right there. All of the interviews are stored uh, on the website in the interviews blog. They're also available at uh, iTunes as podcasts. And so you're going to want to go back uh, to iTunes, subscribe, and download all of these to your uh, favorite electronic device. Uh, My upcoming guests... Next week, on Monday, the 25th, will be Jane Jenkins and Janet Hershenson. They are returning. They are the authors. They, they cast for Ron Howard and uh, you know, big directors and the big movies. They've, they've been in the business since uh, Francis Ford Coppola started the Zoetrope Studios uh, back in the... Hey, you remember that, Harry, don't you? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, back then. Um, anyway, they they uh, they have a book called A Star Is Found, and I you know I I recommend books from time to time, and I just think that their book is a must-have book. It gives you uh, deep insights into the casting processes. They're going to be back uh, Monday, the 25th. So you're going to want to listen to them uh, again. Uh, share their uh, knowledge, their know-how, and their experience. Uh, Uva Bull, producer-director, will be back with us on the 26th, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, he's produced uh, multi-million dollar movies for uh, many years, and, and he will be returning. And then Lance Cowis is a, is a director who's going to be joining us on the 28th. And uh, we want you to uh, tune in for Lance. He's, uh, he's uh, completed a movie in Michigan recently, and uh, we're going to be talking to him about that. On the 29th of, of, of October, uh, Friday night, is uh, at the Milwaukee Art Museum. If you're in the listening area, uh, come on down. Uh, they are premiering a movie that I actually star in called Port of Call, and it's a multidimensional comedy. I have not seen it. It's uh, supposedly... Uh, uh, a lot of special effects and green screens and things like that, but it is a multidimensional comedy, and I'm going to attend, and uh, we'll we'll see what it's all about. It's directed by Glenn Popple. All right, well, so we are here with Mr. Harry Northup on Rex Sykes Movie Beat. The, a lot of great people in the chat room. Let me just say hi to the people who uh, names show up that I know. Vampire Mob is here. Stuart M. Smith, thank you for joining us. Shadow Lion, hi. How you doing? Patty Lynn, thanks so much. Movie Angel from Germany is is with us. And Little Hermie, Kara Ford, Jake Stetler, and FX Guy, Gaffer Girl. So uh, many of my favorite people are in the chat room. There are others who show up merely as guests, and I cannot, I don't know who they are uh, unless they identify themselves other than that. But thanks for being here. I've mentioned these names. Go ahead and follow each other on Twitter and uh, and help each other out. 
And uh, my Twitter address, by the way, is Rex Sykes Movie BT. That's R E X S I K E S Movie BT. That last word is abbreviated. All right, enough of this, Harry. We're back, and um, and we were talking about um, uh, getting your equity card, and mm-hmm. then and then why, when and why did you go to New York to begin your professional acting career? How did how did this all? Now that's a great question, because if you're a young man or young woman out in the Midwest and you want to be, become a professional actor, where do you go? You go to New York or you go to Hollywood? Well, in the early 60s, I went to New York. And I always figured the, you know, the most handsome boy, the most beautiful blonde in high school would go to Hollywood and make it in the movies. But I've always studied acting and theater, and I know that there's been a lot of great theater, the group theater, actor studio, et cetera, in New York City, and there are a lot of great teachers. So I went to New York uh, to study acting. So I think the first thing to do is to study acting with a great teacher. And my teacher was great, Frank Corsero. He, he directed The Night of the Iguana on Broadway, among others. He directed Hatful of Rain off Broadway. He became a you know, brilliant, or he was brilliant, but he became a well-known opera director. He was the artistic head of director studio, the artistic director at um, Juilliard. And so, number one, study. I studied for five years with Frank Corsero, and that's where I met a lot of actors who made a living, you know, Harvey Keitel, Billy Bush, Christopher Jones, Ralph Wade, uh, Richard Bradford, etc. And that's how I got to meet uh, Marty Scorsese. Harvey Keitel had recommended me to audition for Marty, and so I went down on 42nd Street to, uh, I think it was Jonas Mikas' office, and met Marty, and Marty interviewed me for his first film, and I got in that. So what I would suggest to young people is find a great teacher, number one. And if you, you know, I've always loved movies, so study movies. And then the last thing I would just like to say is I believe that whatever you find in life is what's inside you. And I think it's important to work with great directors. So I've always studied directors, whether it's D.W. Griffith, Raoul Walsh, Michael Curtiz, et cetera, of great directors in the past, Bergman, Fellini, uh, you know, um, Pasolini, and then study great directors. And I ended up, that's what I did. You know, I'd see a whole series of von Sternberg films or D.W. Uh-huh. Griffith films. And then, you know, I ended up working with Scorsese and Demian Kaplan. So put inside your heart and your mind what you want in life, and basically I think your journey will be fulfilled. Well, very cool, very very cool. I doubt we were we were uh, we were kind of got, kind of come full circle here because uh, you met Scorsese and uh, and you said Keitel sent you over. Yes, Harvey was in a scene with me. We had done uh, a project down on Fourth Street, and Harvey recommended me to Scorsese. As a matter of fact, I only had one party in five years in New York, and Harvey brought two girls from where he was from, which is Coney Island, Brighton Beach, and I ended up marrying one of those girls. So Harvey introduced me to my first wife. He introduced me to Scorsese. Uh, <laughs> which was the more enduring relationship? Well, you know, they were both about the same. You know, my it was my first wife, for a, a beautiful young Jewish girl from Coney Island wow. uh, from 1967 to 74, and Scorsese, I worked for you know his first six films for a decade, and then later right. on in '85, a TV show. But uh, you know they're they're both, you know they're both wonderful. They were, you know, and I I cherish them both. That's very cool. That's very cool. Yeah, was the first movie with Scorsese was his, his first movie? Is that Who's That Knocking at My Door? 
Yes, he had made a bunch of student films, and then he had made this film. I, I don't remember what it was called in college, but it was like a 45-minute film. And then when it was then after college, he enlarged it to a feature. You know, took it from 45 to approximately 90 minutes. And at first, it was called "I Call First, then "JR," and then "Who's That Knocking?" And as a matter of fact, when it came out in '68, I believe it was Roger Ebert gave Scorsese's uh, film its first great review. Uh, I don't know if it was in a film festival in Chicago, but uh, Ebert wrote a great review and has always loved Marty. As a matter of fact, he wrote a great book that's out now on Scorsese. Very cool. Now, you played the rapist, and then and then from there you went to Boxcar Bertha and played a racist, this racist deputy sheriff, Harvey Hall. Yeah. yeah. Well, now, here's an interesting little story about that. That's a Roger Corman picture. And in that, I had to beat up David Carradine. I had to call Bernie Casey, who used to be a big NFL tight end, uh, by the way, who's also a poet. And we used to, Bernie and I used to sit around at the counter at this little motel coffee shop at night and talk. And then when I had to go in and shoot the scene, it was shot in a jail in an old courthouse down in uh, Camden, Arkansas. And so I, before I went in there, I was thinking about the scene. And I thought, you know, I really like uh, Bernie, but I have to call him all these racist names, et cetera. So I, before I did the scene, there's an old black man sitting outside on a uh, the steps, and I walked up to him, and I said, you know, I have to go in and do this scene, and I have to call Bernie, you know, all these racist names, et cetera, and I said, I feel kind of bad about it because I really like Bernie, and, uh, you know, this old black man looked at me, and he says, well, Sonny, it's just a movie, you know, because <laughs> some, sometimes we take ourselves too seriously, you know, and, you know, the good thing about being an actor, uh, we get to play different roles, which is good. You know, I, I uh, sure a little thing. I I don't remember. I can't remember. I, I I won't be able to get the name of the actor right now, and I apologize for that. But I remember auditioning. This had to be like I must have been eighteen or something. And it was uh, he had written the script, was going to direct it, and it was a comedy. And I was going to come in as a like I guess a racist deputy or something. And he was the sheriff or, or and all I remember is that. I had to read opposite him, and all of the lines were like the N-word and all these racial epithets and everything else. And, and I felt so completely awkward and embarrassed, and uh, it was it was one of the toughest things I had to do. And, and he would be reading it, and he didn't have any problem saying, you know, the lines. Uh-huh. Uh, he was Obviously, he was casting, a, a, you know, a white actor to play the sheriff kind of thing. But it was, it was, it was very tough. Yeah. I didn't get the role. I, mean, I don't uh-huh. even know. Made the movie for that matter, but uh, but uh, uh, you know that is a hard part. Now, so so uh, so you were able to make that switch after talking to. Well, I, see, I, I always feel like I've had a lot of. I always have a streak of violence in me. One time, Glenn, Jenna Rowland said something interesting. She was going to play a a dark character, and she said, "What happens to us once we hit about twenty two? We start building armor around us." But it's good to go into these characters of dark people and just to explore them, to see the humanity in them. Whether we like them or not, you know, there's dark and light in the world, right? Right, right. Uh, no, that's 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 a, a very fascinating point. Now let's let's. I, I don't want I don't want to gloss over any of these, but I but you know we have an hour. I certainly want you to come back. You're getting uh, great comments in the chat room. People are are, are are really loving what you're saying, and so I, I hope you'll come back and you'll join us at another time to to go further in depth with some of these things. And and, and as 
as we have a lot to talk about. But what about Mean Streets, where you played a Vietnam veteran? Um, okay, how Mean Streets. Can, can, you, can you kind of address, I mean, in other words, we went from who's that knocking at my door and Boxer Bertha and Mean Streets and these. How did you move from movie to movie? I mean, in other words, did you audition for each film? Did, did, uh, did the casting director call you up, Marty call you up? I mean, how did you, how did you book each role? Marty asked me to play the soldier. He gave me the script, and when I got the script, all it was was the character receives his you know, homecoming party for Jerry, the Vietnam vet. So he, Harvey comes over to him, pulls out a flag, the character Charlie, played by Harvey Keitel, and then later on my character falls over drunk into the cake. So I told Marty, because I had heard Scorsese say something years before in an interview, he said, Violence always erupts in the background. So that's a very important statement. And so what I realized was I don't want to – the thing about acting is if you get a character that's passive, try to make him active. And so what I did was I thought I'm going to – while these people are saying all these uh, kind of uh, rhetorical things or philosophical things is a better word. You know, I come to bring order, Harvey says, art thou king of the Jews. And then they're having a picnic, these, you know, low echelon kind of penny ante mafia guys, I thought, I'm going to turn their picnic into a nightmare. So I told Marty what I wanted to do was, instead of wearing a suit like it had in the script, I'll wear a uniform, a Vietnam vet's uniform, to separate me a little from them. And then what I'll do, sometime during the, the night, I will destroy the cake, rip the tables apart, and attack a chick. Marty says, I love it. So I told the cinematographer, I asked the prop person first, how many cakes do you have? Well, it was a low-budget film. The prop person said two cakes. So I told Kent Wakeford, who shot Mean Streets and Alice Doesn't Live Anymore, two totally different looking films, please keep me in frame. So at one point in the film, the camera comes in on me. I destroy the cake. I rip the tables apart, a la Lee Marvin. I attack the chick. And then finally, uh, after that scene settles down, Marty cuts to Harvey dancing with the young girl in the back. And the New York Times editor Film critic Vincent Canby said the scene where Harry Northup, who plays the Vietnam vet, uh, destroys his own homecoming is one of the most mysteriously sorrowful moments in recent American cinema. So the whole point is to try when you get the opportunity as an actor, make something happen. You know, you know, obviously talk it over with the director first. And when you work with a great director like Scorsese, they want you to contribute. And even the writer, Mardik Martin, who wrote it with Marty, he came over and he said, you brought something to that scene that wasn't in the script. Very cool. And, and I, I was, I was going to ask you about that. In each of these roles, how much leeway Scorsese had in allowing you to, to you know, bring in your own performance and what kind of shaping or, or, or consultation he might have given? Well, obviously, here's what you cannot do. You can't change the action of the film. For example, in Taxi Driver, who, who is Doughboy? Doughboy is a fellow cabbie who asks De Niro if he carries a piece. Does he want one? I know where I can get you one. Then he picks up De Niro in the scene, takes him to the, uh, you know, the gun salesman. De Niro buys the guns, which he kills people with at the end. You can't change the action of the film. But sometimes somebody will write a script, and years later, the conversation needs to be spiced up. So a lot of times, a lot of the, the uh, uh, dialogue in the script of Taxi Driver, I contributed. I also took with me, you know, the clipboard that I had when I was in uh, driving a cab when I was in college, my 
uh, taxi license. I wore the green Guatemalan jacket that I wore. And here's another, uh, you know, I wore, I had some bull derm in my pocket that I used to roll uh, cigarettes with. And, and here's another interesting thing. In the scene at the Belmore Cafeteria, taxi driver, uh, right before De Niro goes on his shooting rampage, I decided to wear a red shirt because red blood. Okay, when you play a smaller part that's not a lead, what a lot of costume people want, they want you to fade back into the script. No, try to choose primary colors. So I chose red. I wore that. Marty lets you choose a lot. When I arrived on the set, uh, Ruth Morley, who was one of the top four costume uh, persons in New York City, she said, Marty always said, you guys bring your own clothes. So everything except for a pair of pants Marty thought was too fine, I wore. I chose of my own. So the point is, whatever you can do... Bring lines, new lines, new actions, uh, your own clothes, you know, get your haircut exactly the way you want it. If you have any props, you know, the props, I even had my little transistor sister back in 1975 that I used when I was a cabbie. So everything you can do to bring, to make you believe in the scene more, to enhance the scene, do that. And usually a great director will let you contribute. That's fantastic. <laughs> Somebody said, this sounds like a five-part interview, Rex. <laughs> oh well. well, and you know the one thing oh, I just want to. This is great. This is great. I mean, pe people are enjoying it so much. They want you to come back. So well, let me just so, go back to one little thing. Since we're, I know you probably want to talk a little bit about Over the Edge, but one brief uh -huh. little thing about uh, Alice doesn't live anymore. When Marty hired me for the bartender, I'd worked in restaurant business when I was studying acting in New York, and so before I went to to Phoenix to shoot that movie, I wore. I picked boots, uh, jeans, I wore a navy blue shirt, and then I found one of those little western white cross ties, and I, I showed up, I wore that. So Marty loved the outfit, and he always, you know, he's very religious, so the cross tie and the colors. And then here's two things Marty came up to me before we shot the scene. He said to me, uh, two things I'll never forget. He said, this is a close-up, so do not move much. Number two, he said, I'm going to shoot this scene so the red lights reflect off of your blue shirt. And I thought, he's got everything covered. So the more knowledge that somebody has, like Scorsese is a brilliant filmmaker and uh, historian of film, it relaxes you. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Very and the more relaxed you are, the better you are. It's like lovemaking. The more relaxed you are, the better that you are. The more relaxed you are as an actor, the deeper, the more responsive you are. Awesome, awesome, very cool. Uh, yeah, brilliant. I mean, I, I am enjoying this so much, and and so are are the members of the chat room. So let's talk about Over the Edge. Now you got top billing as Sergeant Doberman in that, and this is a cult film. Can you can you talk about its history? Over the Edge was shot, I believe, in '77 or '78, and I it was the first picture, first or second picture Orion did when it was a Warner Brothers, and. Basically, it was based on a true story up in Foster City. But uh, my character, Sergeant Doberman, he shoots and kills uh, Richie, who's played by Matt Dillon. That was his first role uh, when Richie turns around and points a gun at Doberman. And that's been one of, you know, if you ever want to type in Over the Edge on uh, IMDb, there are many, many people arguing whether Doberman had the right to kill Richie. And then what happens, that sets off a... Uh, a big thing where the kids locked the parents and, excuse me, the PTA and the authorities in the cafetorium, and then they commit mayhem. And then at the end, my character 
is taking uh, Carl in, and then another young kid shoots a tire, and, and Doberman's car goes in the rec center, and the, and the kid escapes, and then uh, Doberman, uh, the car explodes, and Doberman goes up in flames, and then the kids go off to uh, jail. You know, at the end, they're driving in a bus, and that and the fire in the background, and then, ooh, ooh child, things are going to get better by Valerie Carter. But that film was like the fourth uh, gang picture down the line, uh, and there was a lot of violence. So what happened, Warner Brothers pulled that film. So it wasn't released until um, there was a, a, a Joseph Papp at the Public Theater in New York had a film uh, series called Forgotten Films on Monday Night at the Public Theater. So he played it in 1981. The New York Times, Time Magazine, Newsweek, I had my picture in Newsweek, Village Voice, among others, they gave it rave reviews. And so it's always been a cult film. And I think that the young people who were like 10 to 14 or 15 at that time, they're the ones that have always supported and loved the film, you know, identified with the kids. And it's just a, it's like a pressure cooker. Everything just seethes and all of a sudden at the end it just explodes. And just a couple of little trivia things. Kurt Cobain, that was his favorite movie. He he he, oh, wow. he based his, his song Teen Spirit uh, on that movie, and and Jodie Foster, she remember she worked for Jonathan Kaplan, who directed Over the Edge. Later, she worked for him in The Accused, and she said the reason I wanted to work with Kaplan after I saw Over the Edge, she said I realized that was the only teen movie that made any sense. So I always wanted to work with Kaplan, and then she worked for him in The Accused, and she won the Academy Award for Best Actress. But right. Tim Hunter and uh, Charlie Hess wrote the script. They're both brilliant screenwriters they were very young and then it was produced by george leto who produced about it you know he did three films for de palma but he was the best producer i've worked for and jonathan kaplan he's just uh you know a tremendous uh director with a large range of feeling and a joyful person to be around well, that is fantastic and and we literally have you know maybe 15 minutes at the outside left here and uh uh uh, you know, maybe we've got time to start pursuing that now. I mean, you, you have worked with him many times, uh, you know, in film and TV. Let's 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 uh, go into some of those the different things that you worked with him on. And, and the other Kaplan? thing is, people are yeah, and people are so impressed with your command of your career and the names and the memories that you have and your ability to to list detail. And I have always always you know sitting at breakfast, you know, found that absolutely you know astounding. You know, somebody will say something, and you have it all there. It's a great memory area. I wish I could remember it as well as you do. Scorsese, Demi, I mean, uh, Quentin Tarantino, those guys are really knowledgeable. You know, I find the more I love something, which is acting, movies, and poetry, the more I study it and learn, the more I realize I don't know. I mean, do you realize how many women directors, women writers there were at the turn of the 20th century that we don't even know about? So there's right. always more to be learned. I would like to just go back to Over the Edge for one second. Yes, please, Earlier please. this year, on February 19th at, in New York City at Lincoln Center, Film Comment, the magazine, has a series called Film Comment Selects, and it's been in existence for 10 years. Usually, Film Comment Selects is mostly made up of new films, but every once in a while they'll do an older film. So on February 19th, Over the Edge was the opening night film. So there were these young people, okay, they're older now, but young when they saw the movie. They came to New York from all over America, uh, mostly from the Northeast, and they saw the movie. There were 300 people there, and then they showed the movie, and then there was a panel discussion, which I was on, along with the two writers, the producer, and some members of the cast, and the, the woman who 
you know, helped discover Matt Dillon. And, you know, one person came up to me from Boston. He said, I've seen Over the Edge 200 times. Another couple said, I've seen it 20 times. But, you know, people love movies. And uh, I've always loved movies. I don't read as much fiction as I used to, but I just love movies because uh, they take you to another place. And, uh, you know, it is a collaborative uh, art form. So Jonathan Kaplan, to get back to him, he saw me in uh, the aforementioned uh, Alice Doesn't Live Anymore. He said, Harry, you were so real that I didn't even know you were an actor. So ever since I saw you, that was 73, I wanted to hire you. So then in 1977, I went in and auditioned for him. He came up to me, and there were a lot of big actors around, Lane Smith, a bunch of other people trying to get the role I got. And uh, he, he kneeled down beside me, and he said, Harry, I want you for this role. I want you to go in there with four balls, make the director like you, make the producer like you, look at him, make sure he feels a little warm from you. And when I got the role, I had five scenes memorized plus a whole bunch of improvisational material. So you really have to concentrate. I remember walking across Beverly Hill Street, and I said, do I want this role? And I said, yes, because if I want it, I know I can get it. So you really have to work hard, and you really have to want something, and I ended up getting it. And Kaplan, over the years, he he just has always hired me, and he's just really a, a down-to-earth guy. You know, Scorsese, Demi, and Kaplan, they're just uh, they're all geniuses. And uh, if I wrote to Demi or if I wrote to Kaplan or call him, they would call me or write me back. Scorsese, he wouldn't call you unless he wanted you because he just, you know, that's the way he is. He's just so busy all the time, and he just focuses on what's uh, right in front of him. He said one time, if I answered all the phone calls and letters that people uh, sent me or called me and told me I was a genius, I'd never get any work done. But you're thankful for, you know, the rarity of working with these great uh, masterful directors and Roger Corman, too, also. Oh, that's very cool. That is very cool. Um, well, uh, let's talk qu- quickly. We have, uh, let's see here, we've got, uh, yeah, we've got about uh, 11 minutes. All right, how about this? How about Silence of the Lambs? I was, ju- you know, that's exactly what I was going to ask you about. You played Mr. Bimmel, and I was yeah. going to say, you know, I was going to say Jonathan Demme has talked to you, uh, you know, worked with you ten times. But let's talk Silence of the Lambs. Very cool. I love Jonathan Demme. He's a positive, warm director. He's a total movie nut. When he was in high school in Long Island, he would go to see a movie, and he would uh, write who was in it, uh, what the subject was, et cetera, on three by five cards. And so he was always a movie lover. And uh, so I played Mr. Bimble, and I remember what happened was I read the I heard he was going to direct it. I read the book. Now, here's another thing people don't think about. I read the book. I wrote him a letter. Like, this is months before the movie started. So I said, you know, I'd like to play this part or that part. So then a couple of months before the film, actually two and a half months before, he asked me if I wanted to play Mr. Bimble. I said, I'd love to. So I got the script two and a half months before the movie started. So what I did was this. I got a pigeon. I kept a pigeon in a cat cage outside. The guy, uh, the pigeon wrangler, uh, put a little um, safety pin in one wing so if it got loose, it couldn't fly away. Every day for an hour, hour and a half, I would bring the pigeon. I called him Champ. In my bedroom, I would put papers down, and he would be, you know, I learned how to hold him. You have to hold the pigeon so that, you know, when it goes to the bathroom, it goes away from you. Uh, and then, you know, we became mates. So when I did the movie and I had to handle pigeons, I was very relaxed with it. And then, so here's the thing. 
in the in the in the script, the character Mr. Bimble is building an addition to his pigeon coop when uh, Clarice, the Jodie Foster, comes along. I thought to myself, one night I was sitting in a coffee shop and I thought, what could I do visually? So I wrote down on one of those uh, cafe napkins, Mr. Bimble. When uh, Clarice comes along, he's holding a pigeon up to the light, a white pigeon looking for mites. That would be a nice visual. So I wrote that down. So when I, I plus I chose the clothes I was going to wear. You know, the the uh, knit cap I wore had red and blue and gray, which are the colors of Ohio State. It takes place in Cincinnati. This thing, even though we shot it in Pittsburgh, and then I chose. I, I saw somebody who works outside back east. He dresses in layers. So I had my character dress in layers. So I took that and I wore everything that I chose except for one thing. But to get to the point of, about the f- opening scene, I'm standing there, and so when I first enter, come to the scene or to the set, Demi comes up to me outside and he said, what do you want to do with this scene, Harry? So I said, I, I pulled out my white napkin. I read him exactly what I wrote. He said, great, we'll do it. So I'm looking at that pigeon up to the light, and then Jody comes along. Then I take her inside, and then here's another thing. I, I, I said, you know, her door is, her room is upstairs, door to the left. So after we finish that emotional scene, Jody, well, just one quick little thing. Jody comes up to me, and she puts her right hand about her forehead, her left hand, her chin, and he said, she said, Demi's shooting this film real close. Does that bother you? I said, it doesn't bother me. I realized a lot of the scenes were shot from her point of view, you know, that what she saw. But she goes upstairs and she looks through the room, and there are also a lot of pictures in this in the room people don't realize of me and my son, my real son Dylan, that you know Demi used uh, as a baby for the daughter Frederica. And then there's shots of uh, the real actress who played Frederica and me spread out through there. But there, and then she looks out, she sees me working with the pigeons. So there's another example of a director who loves you, and it's vice versa gives you an opportunity to contribute and then it makes you more believable and and helps you more believe more in the scene. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And and one of the comments comes from Stuart uh Smith and and there's so many fine people in the chat room but I want to he says that he's that he's in awe and and so am I, you know, and are others of the preparation for every audition and every role that yeah. you described. I mean, you you yeah. do your homework, you do your work and yeah. it, it's a lot of legwork. Yeah. Well, you have to do it. If you want something, prepare and then relax and do it. You know, I remember one time when I was doing Blue Collar, I looked at Harvey Keitel's script on the left blank page. He had three things. He had emotion, physical, and uh, I don't know what the other one, maybe props. But, you know, do everything you can. You've got to remember film is visual. Okay. Say when I did Philadelphia, I played a juror. I went, I went and, you know, there were two scenes I had lines I got cut out, but Demi gave me billing up front. Uh, but what I did was I, I kept notes. You know how you see people keeping notes in a juror box? But what I realized, if you put that notebook down on your lap, nobody's going to see it. So I would lift up this little notebook within the frame where I knew the film was being shot. So you have to remember, film is visual. That's what Scorsese told me when I did Mean Streets. He he comes up to me setting the scene, and I told Marty, I said, Marty, I don't have any lines in this scene. Marty says, film is visual. Don't worry about it. Film is visual. And I end up getting a, a you know, a great uh, review in the New York Times. So just remember that. You know, do whatever you can do to enhance the scene. Clothes, emotion, props, you know, especially things that your own, that are your own. You know what I mean? 
Uh-huh. Personal. Make it personal. That is awesome. That is awesome. Um, Harry, I, I want to, before we forget, we have maybe five or six minutes left, but I want to, before we forget, I want to switch gears just for a complete second. Have you back, at, you know, the, people are going, you know, make this a five-part series, but I want to have you back at least another time and, and yeah. more, if you're willing. Um, but I, I want to give you a moment to talk about your poetry because and your books and, and where they might be available, uh, you know, so that people, because people in the chat room are saying, I want to read his books. I want to, I, they have said, when are you going to write your autobiography? And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and fill us all this stuff in. And I'm getting, please have Harry back. And, and uh, so uh, let's talk for a few moments about the poetry. We will come back and, and talk more about it in other shows, but uh, I, I want to give you that chance right now uh, before we close. Okay. Just a couple of quick things. I began writing poetry in 1966, and I write regularly and read write, read poetry regularly. I've had nine books, as you mentioned, uh, published. The last one is called Red Snow Fence, and my books can be bought if you go online to coangapress.com, C-A-H-U-E-N-G-A, coangapress.com. You could order through there. You could see samples of three of my books, poems from three of my books. You can read a little bio, or you could go to Small Press Distribution in uh, Berkeley, California, and they carry my books. And, uh, you know, I I just write poetry all the time, and I'm on a panel in uh, November 7th in a poetry center here in L.A. I've been part of the poetry community for 42 years. But film acting is one of my subject matters. And... Uh, you know, love and loss and growing up in Nebraska and place. Uh, my wife, Holly, she's also a poet. So I've been very active in the poetry community uh, also. Awesome. I'm, I'm so glad that you shared that. And um, and I, I guess before we close, i got to say, say hi to all our breakfast buddies. And, I will. Um, when you see them next, and when when did you move to Los Angeles? I mean, we, we we've known each other many years, but but you were doing all these New York. Did you go back and forth for some of the New York movies? Some of the I Latin? moved to L.A. March fifth, nineteen sixty eight, and talking about that, uh, one time I did a film called Bad Girls, where I play the where I play the preacher at the beginning of the film who's railing against the women, you know, calling them whores, etc. And the producer Linda Opes, who who has the best title of any book of. I've ever read about Hollywood. The title of her book about Hollywood is "Hello, He Lied." <laughs> Hello, He Lied. <laughs> so, but she told me once. She said, "You're an LA-based person. You work for De Niro, or you work for Scorsese and De- and Demi a lot. They're New York-based." She said, "That's the ultimate compliment when they right. hire you and fly you back to back east." Well, that is awesome. That is that is really very cool. Um, I am so glad that you've been here. Uh, the chat room is so glad. They have questions for you in the future. Um, wow. Uh, someone says, I read that book. I guess, Joe, you mean uh, you read Hello, He Lied. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, also tell them that if they ever want to put any comments, not only to you, but, you know, a person put up a Harry North of Facebook fan page so they could, you know, put a, a line or two to me there uh, you know, if they, I can't reply back because I'm not an internet person. But if they have any things, uh, obviously, you know, contact you because it's your show. But yes. there's also Harry North of Facebook. Oh, very cool. And I always, I always encourage the the listeners and the readers of my show that if they'd like to ask questions in advance and they can't be here live and they can't join us in the chat room, to email those in. They can use the contact page at my website at rexsykes.com. 
and they put the name of the guest. They put Harry Northup in Northup in the uh, in the subject header, and then the, the questions in the body, and they fired off to me. And then we save that for the next time we get together, and then we can ask those questions as well. Okay. And uh, and they have put up uh, the coangapress.com uh, uh, website in the chat room. Gaffer girls, thanks so much. And uh, there, well, there is what he says. The great question from Jackie Gleason about a script where he had a few lines. Is there anything to react to? Is there anything to react to? I think I think this is uh, uh, it's, it's a vampire mob. I think he is is gone back to your statement of you know I don't have any lines in this and Scorsese saying film is visual and uh, he I believe is quoting from Jackie Gleason about a script where he didn't have any lines. If he didn't have any lines, is there anything to react to? Well, yeah, yes. Basically, what film is, listening. You know, when I first did my first year of summer stock, I worked with uh, Piper Laurie, and she, I'd seen her in The Hustler. There's a scene where she's standing at the kitchen sink, and Myron McCormick comes over to Fast Eddie and wants to know why Fast Eddie ran out on him. And she's standing there at the uh, kitchen sink, and she starts crying very subtly. So I asked her about that one time. I said, how did you do that? She said, I don't mean to offend you, but I just listened. So in film, think your own thoughts and listen. I think that's one of the most important things, just like you and I talking here, in acting or in poetry. Be receptive. Listen. The camera can see what you're thinking. Awesome. Well, very good. And we are out of time. But this has been a most delightful hour, and I appreciate it. Uh, it's good to hear your voice again and uh, and uh, and to be able to talk like this. And we will do that again uh, sometime soon. We'll let the listeners know when you're going to come back and when, that, when that's going to be, because I know that they're excited. And uh, for those who are listening archived or as podcasts, uh, uh, you just stay tuned to RexX.com, and you'll find out. Mr. Harry Northup, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Rex. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Oh, no, it's been my honor and my pleasure. So have a great day and take care and uh, a rest of a fabulous week. Okay, thanks. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Mr. Harry Northup, a, a very fascinating guest, and and uh, by all accounts in the in the chat room, uh, people certainly enjoying it. And, and and I appreciate those comments. It's it's great to have the support, and it's great to know that you love the guests and that you they're getting value from uh, what my expert guests share because they are indeed you know they're they're giving the farm away. Uh, and it's great when you respond. And it's also great when you can retweet about it, tweet it live, tweet it after the fact, go ahead, tweet it right now, you know, uh, tomorrow afternoon, a week from now, you know, think back and go, oh, well, gee, you know, I can tweet about this show because there's always an opportunity for people to listen, put it on Facebook. Visit Harry Northup's Facebook friend page, his fan page there on Facebook as well. Uh, but do spread it through your favorite social media means and uh, by phone and by email and in person when you have the opportunity to. I always tell people that they can post these uh, links to uh, the interviews anywhere and everywhere. Just just use good taste. Uh, you know, that's all I ask. But even then, you know, we just help get the word out. And as has been mentioned in the um, in the chat room, we are a community. We are a family at Movie Beat here, and people are helping each other. They are helping crowdfunding, and and they are donating their time and contributing to each other. They are hiring each other and working on projects together. They are supporting each other and following each other on Twitter and, and Facebook and, and uh, encouraging each other. And, and so we are a family, and we are a community, and we are, I am so grateful 
uh, to all of the people who helped make that so. Uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in and for spreading the word. Uh, keep in mind that I have other fabulous guests coming up. At the end of October, I've got Jane Jenkins and Janet Hershenson, casting directors, coming back. Uva Bull will return. Producer, director, and director Lance Cowis is coming back. Again, thanks to Harry Northup and to all of you. Uh, you can become a member of the Rex Sykes Movie Beat uh, Facebook group, or you can join the uh, the Friends uh, page there uh, on Facebook as well. Again, my Twitter address is Rex Sykes Movie BT. That last word is abbreviated. And uh, everybody, uh, have a fabulous day, everyone. Uh, make your movies, complete your projects. Until we meet the next time, that is a wrap. <laughs>